want to hear God's will for our lives as it is set forth in the scripture and uh, we find that not only in the Ten Commandments that are in the book of Exodus but also in many other places in the whole of the scripture and particularly this morning I want us to hear God's will for our lives as it comes from the lips of our Savior in the Sermon on the Mount Uh, in Matthew chapter 5 and I'll begin a reading at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that you, your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And I'll stop there. That is enough to read from the lips of our Savior as he re he gives the law once more in a way that shows that the commandments are not just outward behavior, but speak to our inmost being. And when we see God's law in that way, we understand that we violate it often and we are in need of a Savior and we are called to look to that Savior who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Let us look to the Lord as we confess our sins. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you that as you look at our hearts, as you look at what they are and what they have been in the week that is past, and you see all the imperfections, all the disobedience, all the strain from your word and from your commandments. We must say with the Pharisee in the temple, no, with the publican in the temple, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We ask you, Father, that you would forgive us when we have murdered our Uh, brothers and sisters in our hearts by what we have thought. We ask for your forgiveness of our evil thoughts in many ways. And we pray, Father, that we would look to the Lord Jesus Christ and hold on to him as the one who is able to to save sinners by his sacrifice and by his blood. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now let us...
sing a psalm which pleads for the forgiveness of our sin. Number 51C, and we will be singing the only the first five verses of that song. Psalm 130 tells us, If thou, O Lord, should mark iniquity, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And in those words we have the assurance 
of pardon to everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and who has come to him in true faith and repentance. Let us, um, as we come to the congregational prayer, uh, remember to pray in your heart as I pray out loud for Elaine Hinsega uh, and her continued recovery as she is back home now. But let us uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we come to the one who is exalted, who is righteous, just, and holy, but who is also you are gracious, loving, compassionate, and full of tender mercies. And Father, we confess that we need such a God, for we are in need of mercy and grace. We come, Father, thanking you that you are the one who holds the history of the world in your hands, so that whatever we might see in the world around us that causes unease, fear, uh, even disgust and uh, grief. We know that in spite of this you cause even the wrath of men to praise you. And you are doing as you will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth so that no one can say to you, what are you doing? We ask you, Father, that you would be with Elaine Hinsaga and help her as she continues her recovery. We ask you for your grace upon others among this congregation who might be ill. We pray, Father, for this congregation that, and its pastor. We pray for him as he is on vacation and that you would make that a blessed time for him and for his family. We also, Father, would remember that... Uh, the outside world has called this day Father's Day. And we do thank you for the gift of fathers in Christian homes. And we pray that every father here in this assembly would um, look to you as the fountain and the source of his strength and his leadership in the family.
But Father, we rejoice more that we have you as our Father. And Father, we ask you to grant that you would um, again be with this congregation and grant that as you use the servant that you have called to be its regular pastor, that you would grant that his preaching, his teaching, his ministry among these people would be to your honor and glory. We have begun this day a new week. And as it begins, we have no idea where it will bring us at its end. But we pray that our faith would look to you for guidance and direction as we live in this week, for protection against the evil one and the temptations that we will receive at his hand. And we pray, Father, that we would take advantage of the promise of your word that you will not allow any temptation to come to us except that which we are able to overcome. And we pray that we would hold on to the truth of that promise and not be seduced by the evil one to think that a temptation is too great for us. Father, we ask you to grant your grace upon the preaching of the gospel throughout the United Reformed Church, throughout North America, and to its sister churches that also proclaim the gospel. And we pray that this day might be a day when the Holy Spirit gathers into the church souls that are being redeemed from sin and from slavery to Satan and his devices. We ask you, Father, to grant your grace upon the remainder of this service. We ask you, by your Holy Spirit, to be with the exposition and preaching of your word that the words that I speak might be uh, according to your word and according to your will. And this, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us now prepare our hearts for the a preaching of God's word by singing to his glory number 403 glorious things of thee are spoken.
scripture reading for the message this morning comes to us from Paul's epistle to the Romans verses or chapter 8 verses 18 through 35 um, 25 that is verses 18 through 25 Hear now the word of God. For I consider that the suffering of the present time are not sufferings of the present time are not worthy, worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Thus far, the reading and hearing of God's holy and inspired word. I'll begin by asking you a question. Uh, And I'll be disappointed if I get the answer that anyone can say yes to this. I'll be disappointed. Well, I'll actually be pleased for the person who can say this. Who in this room has never suffered in any way? I didn't think anyone would raise their hand. Suffering in this world is universal. It occurs in, at all times. It has occurred in all places. And it is experienced by all people. There are many different ways that suffering touches us in this world. Sometimes it touches us as a direct result of our sin. We make ungodly choices. We follow our own will rather than the will of the Lord Jesus Christ and he allows those choices to bring suffering into our lives. Sometimes it's the indirect result of sin. The sin of others as they would harm us, abuse us, and in other ways hurt us because of their sin. It is sometimes a result of the direct effect of natural diseases or calamities that come upon people. Illnesses, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes. And sometimes it comes for other reasons. In this creation, in this world, there is no biblical promise that suffering will suddenly disappear from the world. We cannot wish it away. Our relationship with Adam who sinned 
has tied us inextricably with suffering. Paul was aware that this life is full of suffering. But in these verses, he points us beyond the suffering to something that will be and is not now. And as we consider Romans 8, 18 through 25, we want to look at three things this morning. First, that there is no comparison between the present suffering and the glory that is to come. Secondly, we want to see the logic behind the confidence that the apostle who wrote these words had to make that astounding statement. And finally, we want to see the hope to which this calls us if we truly are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, Paul says there is no comparison between the sufferings of this present world and the glory that is to come. Now, what is it that leads Paul to such a confident statement. Now, if you read the first phrase, for I consider, you might get the idea that Paul is just making a statement of his opinion. Sometimes that's the way we use the word consider. We ourselves come to a conclusion based upon maybe just wishful thinking. But this word in the Greek actually refers to reasoning. This is a statement Paul has arrived at through the guidance of the Holy Spirit that comes from reason. And the word is in the Greek is the word from which we get the word logic. And we'll be looking exactly at what that logic is in the second point of the message. But now we want to see that he has reasoned and come to the conclusion that uh, there is no um, no comparison uh, to the glory that is to be revealed in the suffering of this present world. And we need to be as certain as Paul was that this is the case. That the glory that we're 
looking toward is so great it's not even worthy to compare to the sufferings we have in this world. And being confident of this is a weapon against two kinds of skeptics. There is the one skeptic who says that the hope of eternal glory is this simply pie in the sky by and by. It's just wishful thinking. It's just somehow uh, saying, well, I don't like what's here in the presence of just project a rosy future into the heavens. But that's not Paul's, the basis of Paul's uh, conclusion here. He has been guided by the Holy Spirit to understand that this is indeed the very truth of God. And it can be counted on. Then the other kind of skeptic who looks at the suffering of this world says, well, this proves that God either is not God or is not good. They say if he were God, if he really were all-powerful and almighty, he would just take all suffering away from the world. So, if he doesn't do that, that means either he does not have the power to remove the suffering, or he does not have the goodness to renew, remove the suffering. But knowing God's promise is an antidote to that kind of reasoning. Because what the skeptic is doing is looking at things without looking at the whole plan and purpose of God as it's laid forth in the scripture and refusing to see that in God's perfect plan everything, regardless of what it may look like at the time, fits into that plan. Now, those of you who are mechanically oriented, automotive mechanics, which doesn't include me, um, just suppose you had never seen an automobile engine before as it's put together all at once. In, but you are taken in and there's a carburetor sitting divorced from any other connection with the automobile engine. You might say, well, this makes no sense. 
This is just something that, yes, it looks like it's intricately put together, but it's not associated with anything. Well, when you look at the circumstances of life and don't connect them with what the Bible says about Adam's fall into sin, about the curse that was put upon the world, about the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ to overcome the curse, then that produces the skepticism. But the confidence that Paul has here is pointing to a secure promise of God's word that the glory to come will connect those dots that we can't connect in our hearts and in our minds. It will show us that God is both God Almighty, working all things according to His plan and purpose, and He is good. Working out what Paul will say in a few more verses, that all things work for, together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, we must take the word seriously, the phrase seriously that Paul says here, that the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Now, if you're like me, when you see those words, you will start trying to compare the two things. That's the way we're put together. Paul says there's no comparison, but we read the words and we say, well, let's see what the comparison is. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sicknesses. There'll be no more earthquakes or tornadoes or hurricanes or tsunamis or anything like that. There'll be no more sorrow. And yes, that's true, but that's not the picture that Paul wants us to consider here. That only puts us to a neutral state. But what we are to learn from God's word here through the Apostle Paul is that the glory that is to come is not just making those comparisons and saying not this, not that not the other thing. It's something that we have no ability to comprehend, which means to understand deeply, but we have no ability even to apprehend, which means 
to know something without knowing how it works. The glory that is to come is outside of all our experience. So that's why Paul says there's no comparison. And he knew this by his own experience. As he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And this calls for faith. If the glory to be revealed was something that we could look at from our experience, uh, calculate on a calculator or feed into a computer, then we could do it only with the exercise of our mind. But God doesn't want us to look at his promises in that way. His promises are not made on the basis of our experience. His promises are made on the basis of his almighty power and knowledge and the fact that he knows and we don't know. But he has given us enough in the gospel to know through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us that he is worth trusting. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's what God's Word says, and that's what we believe, and we, our hope is in that. And we don't need to be able to check everything off as if it was a series of things in a checking list. So we want to then look at the logic behind Paul's confidence. Again, I remind you that when Paul made this statement, when he wrote these words, it wasn't just a blind leap into the darkness. It wasn't as if he said, everything looks terrible, the world is going uh, south, and, but I'll just close my eyes 
and pretend that everything will be okay in the end. Instead, Paul indicates that there is something taking place in creation itself that gives us hope for a future glory. And what is that thing? He um, says um, it's the creation itself groaning, eagerly awaiting something that will happen. It's something that will happen by God's appointment, not by the efforts of man. This destroys all philosophies that would make us saviors of the world. The solution to the problems of mankind only isn't in our hands. It's in the hands of Almighty God. Um, And we need to understand that what He does is what will give hope because creation is eagerly waiting for something and that is the restoration of what was lost and the revealing of the sons of God. What does that phrase mean? The revealing of the sons of God. Well, it's a reference to our adoption. That we who were born in sin, when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we were justified. We were placed in a right standing with Him legally. But that's not the only thing that happened when we came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were brought into His family, made the adopted brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have, as Paul will say in a few verses later, the right to call God our Father. But that adoption that is already ours is only what Paul calls in verse 21 the first fruits of the Spirit. There's something more to that adoption. There's something that hasn't become ours as yet but it will be ours. And what Paul says that is, is the redemption of our bodies. Now listen carefully to the word. Not the redemption of our spirits, but the redemption of our bodies. He's speaking of our resurrection. 
The resurrection of believers is a doctrine that we often conveniently forget. Often we will say, well, I believe I'm going to heaven when I die. As if that's the end of it. And Paul does talk about being absent from the body and being present with the Lord. But that's the intermediate state. That's not the entirety of our salvation. Jesus said to his apostles after the resurrection, because I live, you will live also. When our bodies lay down to die, in whatever way that will come, that's not the end of them. That's why the scripture speaks of God's people as sleeping when it's referred to their deaths. Because there is a resurrection. There is a redemption of our bodies that is uh, makes our fellowship with Jesus Christ even closer because we share in His own bodily resurrection. Now, the hope, the uh, announcement of the incomparable glory of the future um, calls us to hope if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word hope in its noun or verbal form is used six times in this brief passage of Scripture. And other phrases such as I have already pointed to eager longing and wait eagerly, that's another two times. Why does Paul talk about hope so much in these verses? Because that's what the verses call us to do if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The astounding announcement of incomparable glory calls up to hope and there are lessons to learn from this hope. First, creation's subjection to futility ironically calls us to hope because it points to the promise that creation shall be set free from its bondage. And Paul says, talks about the one who subjected creation to futility in hope. It wasn't just that when man sinned, God said, I'm done with them. 
And to show this, I'm going to curse even the ground because of them. But the very fact that he cursed it is not the end. Paul said he subjected it to futility in hope that there was something that was going to come and undo the curse. If God had been through with mankind when our first parents (coughs) fell into sin, there's no reason that they should have breathed another breath. He could have wiped the world away with one swipe. We look at the curse on creation and think of its negative side. But the very fact that it is not a final destruction is a positive side. And that's reinforced in the flood with Noah when God brings that flood upon the whole earth to destroy it, but not completely. There's Noah and his family. There's the creatures that Noah was commissioned to bring upon the ark. And that cried out as much as the flood cried out judgment. The ark cried out salvation. The ark cried out there is a future for God's people. And the promise of the rainbow is God's mark upon that future. I pause to say one of the sad things in this day of ours is the use of the rainbow in such a different way than God's promise of his grace in not wiping the world out by a flood anymore. But in order to have this hope. In order to heed the call that our very salvation brings to us, to hope in God, that we have in Christ forgiveness of both original sin and personal an actual sin. What it calls us is again to faith. And it calls us to a faith that is not unreasonable. If there were no God, faith would be just nothing. Just an empty thing. But God is the one who made all things. 
He's the one who knows all things. He is the one who inhabits eternity. So what is future to us is not future to him. He knows the outcome. It's not just an intention that he has from his perspective. It's what he has already done. And that means his promises are sure. To know God's promises is surer than to see them unfold. You say, where do you get that? I get it from the Apostle Peter, who in his epistle says, I was with him on the holy mountain, meaning the mountain of transfiguration. There was Jesus with Peter, James, and John. And Jesus was transfigured before they saw his glory on the mountain. And Peter reminds his readers that that is true of him and his colleagues. But he says, we have something more sure. Now what could be surer than to be on that mountain and to see the glory of Christ with your own eyes. But what Peter says it is, is the sure word of prophecy. God's promise is as sure as if it were done. That's the kind of faith that God calls us to have. Not a hope as we use the word hope. Oh, I hope the Packers will have a better season than they did last year. Um, But a hope that is sure because it is based upon the one who cannot lie and the one who controls all things. This is the hope that can sustain us in times of suffering because we have God saying it's not comparable to the glory that will be here. Some of us in this room are closer to that glory than others. But although we may think by looking at faces we can judge who that is, we don't really know who that refers to being close to glory. But whether it is near at hand or far away, it is the promise of God. But I must say there is another side if we turn our back on God's promise. 
if we say to him in its in effect, I don't believe it until I see it. I won't trust until it's a reality. Well, if you have that attitude, if you have no faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't see in his sacrifice not only a partial or temporary forgiveness of sin, then you will never come to see the hope of this promise. Because the hope is for those who believe that he is faithful who promised. And the guarantee of that is what happened in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death on Calvary, in his being buried and raised on the third day. And if our faith is in that, that he accomplished then, then our faith is called to be in its conclusion in the redemption of our bodies. But if we reject that, then this passage doesn't call us to hope, but calls us to despair. To despair not only that those who think this life is all that there is, They are wrong about that, but they still have a kind of despair. But this despair that comes from those who go into the outer darkness where is the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. Hope or despair. This is what this passage sets before us. And the question is, which will we choose? May God bless you, and may God bless his word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we ask you to uh, take the word that was read and